Uh, Evie's going to bring us uh, the Bible reading today. Uh, if you have the church Bibles, it's on page six. Um, thanks, Evie. This morning's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and tells the story of Noah and the flood. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. You are to... The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord God commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, 
all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, as, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased gently on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that had moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, people and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's quite a long passage. Thanks for, uh, for reading that, Evie. It's well done. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to church today. Uh, it's such a, a rainy day, which um, feels um, interesting now that we're doing the flood. So let's uh, hope and pray that we don't experience that Um, today. I'm sure we won't. God promised already that it won't happen. Um, If we could go to the first slide. There we go. Um, So if you keep your, I'll invite you to keep your Bible open um, as we look at God's Word. So let me quickly just pray as we start. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your Word here in Genesis, which teaches us that um, you plan to destroy sin Lord, help us to put our faith in you so that we are saved through the coming judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the the past few weeks, we have been working through a series in Genesis, as I'm sure you're aware. And um, uh, we're working through what's sometimes considered one of the more contentious parts of the Bible, uh, Genesis 1 to 11. And of course, to cover such a, a tricky part of God's Word, we brought out the big guns. We had David Krebs last week, and we've got the student ministers this week and next week. And David, of course, did a, a wonderful job last week. But now I have the um, pleasure of helping us work through chapter 6 and 7. A few uh, weeks back, we started at the beginning of Genesis, where we saw that God made creation, and He made it very good. And just after that, we saw sin and rebellion begin to enter the world as the snake tempted Adam and Eve, and they ate from the fruit. And as we've continued through Genesis, through the the narrative and through the genealogical records, we've seen a steep decline into corruption, which has spread. There's been murder, there's been rape, there's been hatred, rebellion, pride, violence, the world falling into chaos. And at the center of it all is a deep disregard and disdain for God who lovingly made and blessed the world. Yet in all of the chaos, 
we're introduced to a hope in chapter 3. The promise of one who will be born of woman who will crush the serpent's head. A person who will deal with the root of sin. And today, as we come to chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through to chapter 7, we find ourselves at the flood narrative, with all of that as the background. A world falling into corruption, but a promise of a serpent head crusher to come. We're first introduced to Noah in verse 9, and he's described as one who walks faithfully with God, a man who is righteous and blameless in the people of his time. And the question here arises, is this the promised snake crusher? Is this the person who will be the catalyst for the destruction of sin? And that will be an important question as we work through the narrative. Is Noah the saviour, or does he perhaps point to one to come. And we'll think about that in a bit. But first, it will be good for us to consider um, three things in this narrative, which I think will help us as we go along. And those three things are the judgment of sin, the righteousness of faith, and finally, the hope of the new creation. So look with me at chapter 6, starting at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. I wonder what you think about God's judgment here. I think it would be understandable to think something like, well, how could God do that? How could God go to such an extreme? We might be tempted to think, if I was a judge, well, I would try to find another way. I wouldn't do that. It's tempting, isn't it, to doubt God's trustworthiness or his goodness or perhaps even his motives behind judging. I wonder, do you think surely we know better now These are serious and important thoughts, and I think it might be helpful for us to have a quick look back at what happened in the garden between Adam and Eve as they were tempted um, about God's judgment. So, um, after Adam had been told not to eat the fruit, or he would certainly die, the snake sows the seeds of doubt in God's character. The snake says to the woman, you will not certainly die. Instead, he says, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the snake convinces, God, uh, convinces them that God is untrustworthy, that he has hidden motives and that he has not given them all good things. Adam and Eve are told that they can be the judges of their own. And that actually even more than that, that they need to be because God has lied to them. And so Adam and Eve judge that the fruit is good because of its perceived benefits. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. When they take the fruit, what they have essentially done is actually show that they believe God to be a liar and that his word is untrue. And because he is untrustworthy, they have made themselves to be the judges of truth. When we read the judgment of God here in the flood narrative, the challenge for us is the same. Do we trust God's judgments? Or do we think our way is better? I wonder if Adam and Eve um, can be a helpful corrective, actually, for us as we think about the judgment of God. The Bible tells us that he is a good judge and that actually what he knows is right. I think really at the heart of it, we get um, at least three things wrong. We don't believe God is as good as he is. We don't believe sin is as bad as it is. And we don't believe that we are as corrupted by sin as we are. If you remember back um, from last week, uh, as David preached to us, from chapter 6, verse 5 says, Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. That's a pretty damning thing to say, isn't it, to us? Because of this, it is really important that God remains the judge, for we actually are unable to judge properly. And we know, don't we, that if someone has committed a horrific crime, justice means that they pay for that crime. If a judge simply sent criminals away unpunished with no consequences, uh, we would actually call for that judge to be fired, wouldn't we? We know that they're a bad judge. And so a good judge, his job is to condemn evil and only acquit the innocent. So it can't be that God would be any different to that. And actually, it should be a cause for rejoicing that he's a good judge. Now, I I do realise that um, very smart theologians and philosophers have wrestled uh, very long and hard about how to carefully and pastorally talk about God's judgment, because it actually affects us in profound ways. But I also recognise I've only been given about 15 minutes for this sermon, and this is one of my points. And so, I'm going to have to move on from here, but I do hope you take away at least three things. God is bigger than us. He knows better. He's also gooder than us, and I say gooder instead of better, which is the correct English, because I, I want to highlight, um, highlight God's moral character here. And finally, to know that we're just not as good judges of evil as we think we are because we're actually caught up in it. And so, therefore, I hope we just move forward trusting and knowing that God's judgment here is right and good. So, moving forward, how does God judge sin here? Well, to understand um, what is happening, it will be helpful for us to understand, uh, to look at the implications of the floodwaters. If you remember back in Genesis 1, before God created the world, the text describes an ominous, uh, uh, ominous, sorry, an ominous deep 
of waters in verse 2, which God then separates so that there's a space of air between um, the waters in verse 7. And then he brings the dry ground up out of the waters for a place for living creatures in verse 9. See, so in the ancient world, the waters stood for non-creation. They were unordered. They were destructive. And so when God brought up the dry ground here, there is now a place of order, a place for life. And so moving forward then to Genesis 7, where we are, when God brings the floodwaters in to destroy the earth in judgment, in a sense, he's undoing creation. He's undoing sin. He's uncreating. It's a total destruction of his creation, a redo. And God shows us here that his intention is to totally destroy sin and create a new world. And yet notice, the flood wasn't a total destruction, was it? Noah and his family and the animals were preserved. This isn't by accident. God knew what he was doing. The time for a total renewal was not in Noah's day by means of a flood. But what this story shows us is that God was and is planning something in the future, and we'll get there. But first, the righteousness of faith. So, why on earth would God choose Noah? Why would he show mercy to Noah? If he wanted to get rid of all flesh, why is Noah and his family preserved? Well, here Noah is described as someone who walks faithfully with God, who... Um, kind of like Enoch, was taken up to heaven in chapter 5. He's he's also described as a righteous and a blameless man. But the question is, is Noah a perfect person? Was he without sin? Did he never sin? Well, I actually don't think that's what the text here is describing, and I have four reasons for that. So the first is because the Bible is quite adamant that no one is without sin except for Jesus. It's clear that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The second point is that actually the words um, righteous and, and blameless in the original language can and do sometimes describe people who um, are exemplary in their sort of uh, cultural community. So they act well towards the people around them and that's recognised. It doesn't necessarily mean they're not sinful in their hearts. And in the coming weeks, in chapter 9, we'll actually see that Noah's, Noah and um, his family uh, are still under the effects of sin with an incident with his son, Ham. And then the fourth reason is the description of Noah is actually someone who's righteous and blameless in his generation. In other words, he stood out. Was he perfect? No, he's still under the effects of sin, but he did have something distinctive about him that others didn't have. So what was that? What was so distinctive about Noah? Well, what was distinctive about Noah is his faith. Noah believed God. Noah had faith in God's word. 
You see, Noah believed what God had said, that the flood was coming, and that if he followed God's instructions to build the ark, that he and his family would be saved, covered from the flood waters of judgment, preserved from the judgment of sin. Hebrews 11 corroborates this. It says, by faith, Noah became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. What would it have looked like if Adam and Eve had had faith? If they had believed God's word rather than the snake's word? Would they have eaten the fruit or would they have obeyed God? See, faith, rather than making God a liar, holds him to be true, to be trustworthy, to be good. Faith puts its trust in God as judge of good and evil. It does not accuse God of infidelity or impotency. It doesn't demand that God do what we wish, but as he will, and that his word is trustworthy. It's Noah's faith which is counted as righteousness. He's still a man affected by sin, but he has faith in God, his saviour. And we'll see that the fruit of his faith in his obedience is his obedience to God's word. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. God had warned Noah that a judgment was coming and Noah believed. God told Noah to build an ark and so he did. And that ark protected him and his family and all the animals from the chaotic waters of judgment. Noah's faith in God's salvation saved him. Noah here is an example for us of the righteousness of faith, faith which is necessary if we're going to be saved through the judgment of sin and enter God's new creation. Now, I think um, we've seen already that Noah isn't the serpent head crusher that we might have hoped for. He's still sinful, he's still affected by sin, he hasn't dealt with it. And in the coming weeks, we will see that the flood doesn't completely wipe out sin. Even the fact that um, God actually tells Noah that he needs to bring both clean animals and unclean animals onto the ark suggests that there would still be a place for animal sacrifice after the flood. God knew this wasn't the final event. Instead, the flood points forward to an even greater event with an even greater salvation. It foreshadows the final judgment on the last day. See, this, short, this, this story shows us God's desire to, and intention to cleanse and renew the world, to destroy sin once and for all and for all, uh, and create a new heavens and a new earth. The Bible tells us that the world is passing away, 1 John 2 and 1 Corinthians 7. And that a cataclysmic event is headed towards humanity where the world will be burned up and the righteous and unrighteous judged by God. Read with me um, as Luke, Luke 17 says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it would be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. And to Peter, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. How will you be saved? 
This time, sin will not be allowed to survive, and all sinners will be condemned and done away with. Unless you are righteous like God, what hope is there for you? What hope is there for me? I'm certainly not a perfect person. What we need is faith. For our faith, it is faith that is counted mercifully as righteousness. And the object of Noah's faith was in God's word and that a flood was coming and that he needed to build an ark. But the stakes are higher now, aren't they? An ark simply won't do. Wood's not very good at keeping fire out. So what must the object of our faith be? Who must we place our faith in? Romans 5. For if by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? For us, God has warned us of a coming judgment in his word, the Bible. And just, that's just like what happened in the days of Noah. God warned him. The provision for salvation now is not an ark, but in Jesus who bore our sins on the cross. He is the serpent head crusher who breaks the power of sin. When we believe God's word and we put our faith in Jesus, in him we are covered from the judgment. In him, our sins are covered by Christ's death. In him, we will be raised with sinless heavenly bodies fit for a new creation. It will not be like in the days of the flood where sin continued. It will be total and complete, a whole creation, new, and it will praise Jesus. This is the hope that we have in the new creation. When we remain in Christ through faith, you could think of it like a figurative figurative ark if you wanted. We are covered and atoned for by Jesus' blood, like the pitch which kept the floodwaters of judgment out. We are sealed by God, like Noah and his family when God shut the doors of the ark with his very own hand. And we now expectantly wait for the renewal of all things, just like Noah and his family and the animals awaited over a year atop the water. Do you trust God's judgment on sin is a good thing? Have you put your faith in Jesus, God's only means of salvation? Do you wait expectantly for the new world to come? I certainly pray that you do. Let me finish with these words from 2 Peter. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your judgment on sin. We ask you help us put our faith in Jesus, being confident that he will protect us from 
the judgment to come. Help us to rejoice in hope for the new creation. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.